Welcome to the first ever episode of She, she is, is Fierce! Stories from the female and genderqueer perspective. My name is Chessa Betancourt. And I'm Linnea Ingalls. Linnea, what do you do at She is Fierce? I am the artistic producer. What are your pronouns? She, her. Cool. What are your pronouns? What are you doing here? <laughs> what am I doing here? Um, my pronouns are she and her, and I'm the artistic director of She Is Fierce, and we're also the founders and the only two employees. <laughs> well, we don't get paid, so. <laughs> we're the only two volunteers at She Is Fierce. <laughs> Yikes. Um, Some people help us put up posters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, boy. Um... Great. So you might be asking yourself, what is... As a viewer. As a viewer, as a listener, listener, as a person taking in this information, you might be asking yourself, She is Fierce, what is that? Yeah, what's going on there? Um, She is Fierce, Stories from the Female and Gender Queer Perspective, is a recurring storytelling event in Seattle, uh, basically where people who are female or genderqueer slash non-binary tell stories from their lives that matter to them. Um, And that really ranges from funny stories to serious stories to poems to songs to physical stories. Um, And it happens every six months or so. And um, yeah, Linnea, how many stories have we had so far? How many shows have we had so far? How many stories? (laughs) Uh, Well, I think we've had seven shows so far, um, which would make it would make probably an average of 70 stories. Yeah. Chessa, how did She is Fierce get started? Oh, boy. She is Fierce got started uh, about three years ago. Linnea and I were on a bus in Rwanda on a very long bus ride, and we were listening to a podcast that was mostly just women being interviewed about certain topics, and both of us got really excited by that idea, and I realized just how seldom it is that I hear from women in general um, or people who are not men and how much I wanted to hear more of it. I feel like we really gobbled up the whole podcast. Yeah. And we just got really excited about hearing from those people more and the idea of hearing stories about what had challenged those people in their lives, what made them laugh, what they thought about different things. And essentially, um, Linnea and I are both theater artists. Uh, We both do theater. And so performance and uh, theater is like our chosen way of expressing things. And so also what makes us a little bit different is we provide the storytellers an option to work with local female or genderqueer artists to help bring their story to life. We also have a lot of different medias that come into. We have film. We've had like dance we've had scenes we've had a lot of different um we've had paintings we've had photography we've had henna on someone's body um we have a lot of different ways that stories are told because we don't really believe that stories are just told um verbally and we also feature a comedian and an illustrious mc oh yeah where did the name she is fierce come from um so because we're theater nerds um it came from the phrase though she be but little she is fierce which is from what who said that shakespeare did oh um in a midsummer night's dream 
Yeah, I just always really liked that. We really fretted over the... It was a fretful time. It was a fretful time. We really fretted over what to name it for a long time. Um, And I just love the idea that women can be underestimated. um, And people who are not men tend to be marginalized, tend to be sort of like oh, this person is little and so they can't be fierce or this person is feminine and so they can't be fierce or this person um, has these traits and so they can't be strong or powerful. Um, And I really resent that. And so I really love just the phrase, though she be but little, she is fierce. Um, That a woman um, can look a lot of different ways. Um, That someone who is non-binary can look a lot of different ways and identify a lot of different ways. Um, And all of those people can be can be as strong as cis men can. And we actually went through a little bit of a transformative moment with the name, um, because it used to be stories from the femme and female perspective. Um, And then we realized that we were excluding a whole group of people that we really wanted to make sure were invited to tell stories on our stage, which are people who are genderqueer or genderfluid or non-binary. And so we changed the name, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago on our fourth one. Yeah, so about halfway through our journey so far we were like I don't like this name yeah. let's get rid of it um Linnea yes Chessa what do you like about she is fierce <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect I don't think either of us really expected this to take off in the way that it did I think we had a pretty like fun little scrappy little grassroots beginning that um by the very nature of it kind of folds people into our family story telling your story is a really healing process to put so much like empowerment and joy behind the the healing process and coming to terms with yourself and the oppressions that you uh, may have faced um which if you're uh, female or genderqueer is often many. <laughs> um, but that community and joy can be just healing as fuck. Hashtag healing as Hashtag fuck. Hashtag healing as fuck. <laughs> um, and like we're, we're providing like a facilitation or a platform for this, but like it's really like the magic of the storytellers that is creating the magic of She is Fierce. And it's very cool to see that yeah what do you like about she is fierce uh so much (laughs) i like everything about it um i think there's just something extremely powerful about watching someone own their own experience on stage i think from a really early point we knew how affected we were by those stories um and then just like realized how much our community was really craving those stories. And I think um, this podcast is really an effort to broaden that community because I think people in general really crave, really crave nonfiction stories, really crave hearing people tell stories from their own vulnerable experience and heart and mind. Um, So that always is just so affecting and just every, how every show has been drastically different and every story is drastically different. Um, And how much it's evolved over the course of the last few years. Um, We, as producers, have really evolved and we really are listening to what is working and what storytellers really respond to, what audiences really respond to. Um, And we've also started making sure that all of our spaces that we work with are ASL interpreted and um, ADA accessible and 
we just like the way that it evolves each time and the way that it grows and how different every show is really is my favorite part about it is that it's always changing but it's always joyful and celebratory and always teaches me something and yeah but it's always different and what is your favorite first this is so ridiculous but (laughs) the first that sticks out in my mind is um the first time I went trick-or-treating uh, I was like three years old and my mom had like explained it to me. She was like, you're going to go up to the door. You're going to say trick or treat. And then someone is going to put candy into your bag. And I was like, okay, but I think I wasn't really listening because I went up to the door and I said trick or treat and they gave me candy and I like sprinted up to my mom and I was like, they gave me candy. And I just like freaked out. And she was like, yeah, that's what it is. And... <laughs> And and then I went up to another door and said trick or treat and they gave me candy and I was like equally like my mind was blown every door that I went to that they still were giving me candy. So I think it, that comes to mind. It's like something that you just like had no idea was possible and then by doing it for the first time like this whole world is totally unlocked. And you're just like <laughs> level up baby. Every October I just have to go to someone's house and they will hand me candy. And I just have to, like, wear a little witch's hat and be a cute child, and I'll just get free candy. (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) That's what I think of. Um, Linnea, how do you relate to the theme first? What's your favorite first in your life? Uh, The only firsts that I can think of are, like, really embarrassing ones, like the first time I pooped my pants. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess in public. (laughs) Tell me more. (laughs) Oh, you know, I was in kindergarten. I was hanging out, having a good time. I had way too... I just, like, was in the middle of a really good session with my, like, Barbie doll playhouse. I could not just leave it. I loved that you just called it a session. (laughs) Like you were giving them therapy. (laughs) I had to to play the rest of the scene out. I couldn't just take a break. It wasn't time for intermission yet. You know what I mean? No. You know. Shit happens. <laughs> Literally. Hashtag shit happens. Hashtag storytelling is healing as fuck. Great. Well, I don't want to talk about me anymore. <laughs> this is your idea. Um, this episode is very appropriately our very, very first show uh, was about two and a half, three years ago. And um, we have a few storytellers from that show performing for you or recording for you uh, stories of their firsts. Um, That was our first show ever because we thought it was a very appropriate theme for our first production ever. And I think it's equally as appropriate for our first podcast ever to be from our very first show. So you'll hear from four different storytellers. First, you'll hear a person's story and then you'll hear an interview with them where you'll hear a little bit about them and their relationship to their story and how they developed that story. So enjoy. Our first storyteller is Kelsey Busich. Kelsey is an active member of the theater and film community in Seattle. She's also a firefighter. She dedicates this performance to Sifu Eddie Lane, Eric Jorgensen, and her family. Here's her story, Once Upon a Punch. Once upon a time, there lived a girl who believed in Disney stories. This girl believed that if she was a kind, obedient, patient, and hopeful, Prince Charming would enter her life and make all her dreams come true. 
as you may have guessed it, I'm that girl. Now, this story begins long ago when the girl sat down with her acting professors to find out what they thought of her talents and what she was to work on on the upcoming college semester. The professors three started by telling the girl they were pleased with her work. However, they said, you need to stop playing weak characters. No more Juliets. No more Ophelias. No more princesses. What? No more princesses? But how would the girl find Prince Charming and live happily ever after? How could she play any other roles than the one she was always striving to be? The girl was upset. Kelsey, they said, you are too strong to play these frail female characters. You're destined to play queens, warriors. We know your destiny is to step on the stage as Cleopatra, Queen Macbeth, and Kate the Shrew. It's time you accept that this is who you are. The girl thanked her professors and left the room in a daze. She was haunted by that ever-familiar question we all end up facing at some point of our lives. Who am I? She went home and watched every Disney movie she owned. She looked through her novels and started to ask questions. What was the connection she felt to every single fantasy she ever knew and loved? If she wasn't destined to be a princess, then what was her true course? A thought came. A crazy, interesting, zany idea that would not leave her mind. She tried to push it off, but it stuck around for the next few days, then a week. Eventually, that thought stuck in her mind for over a month. Fine, I'll do it, she said to herself. The next day, the girl walked into the local Kung Fu Academy. There were men warming up doing unbelievable things. They were flipping through the air, kicking over their heads, performing routines that looked just so damn cool. It was like they jumped out of a Jackie Chan movie. Instead of being frightened or wanting to run back out the door, the girl felt something else stir inside. Deep down, there was just this sensation of... Yes! The instructor, his name is Sifu, walked up to the girl with a grin on his face and said, You ready? Hell fucking yeah, I was ready. I leapt onto the floor with my new Kung Fu brothers. There was a small feeling of intimidation, especially after watching what they could do. But I knew they all started in the same spot I was. We gathered on the floor to learn stances. Sifu told us to drop down into a horse stance, which is like... Basically, a very low squat. My legs were on fire. After 20 seconds, they were an inferno. The others looked statuesque, and I was shaking like a leaf. Don't stand up. Don't stand up. Don't stand up. Shit. Next thing I knew, I stood up. Excuse me, Sifu yelled. I said nobody could stand up yet. He walked over, looked me in the eyes, and said, Today is your first day, but know this. You must fight and never give up. I could promise today is the hardest it'll ever be, but I wouldn't be telling the truth. Kung Fu will test your mind. It will test your spirit. If you stand, get back down. If you fall, get back up. And if you think I'll be easy on you, you're wrong. You're the first woman to train at my school, but in here, you and your brothers are all equal. Whew. 
chills went through my body. It was a very intense altercation, and I was certainly scared. The door was wide open for me to just walk right back out, but I didn't. I stared him in the eyes and said, yes, sir, and got back down into my painful stance. Wobbly legs turned into tree trunks. Uncoordinated movements flowed into seamless transitions. Punches started to mean something, and kicks stretched higher and higher. Eventually, they even let me play with some weapons. I gained this new sense of myself because I took a risk. I listened to my heart and I realized I never wanted to wait around for my life to start because each and every day had potential for greatness. I stand before you as a woman who isn't confined to the standards of society. I am no longer a woman who is waiting for a Prince Charming. If the right man wanders into my story to go on adventures by my side, then so be it. This is who I am. A warrior, a woman, a martial artist, a sword-wielding biatch. Because, I mean, yeah, they finally let me play with sharp things. I have new goals and aspirations, and the only thing that can stop me is my own mind. I may not be the Disney version of perfect, but I think I'll settle for Warrior Princess. What is your history with this particular story for you? Is it a story that you had written down before? Is it a story that you've told before or like thought about before? I definitely remember that moment in college of trying to always trying to be these pretty roles of, oh, I I really want to be this delicate, like fragile type of person because that's what is supposed to like attract men. It sounds really weird, but I legit thought like, oh, I, I'm way too tall. I'm way too muscular. I'm way too aggressive. And I swear a lot. So I need to like not be that. But there's this other part of me that I really repressed that was like, F that. I want to go do what I want to do. What makes you feel fierce? What makes you feel empowered? I don't look at things that I do like they're a big deal. I do the things in my life because I think they're fun and I like to break stuff and I'm loud. Uh, but every now and then I kind of need that reality slap of, oh, what I'm doing is kind of a big deal. And, uh, the other day I was driving the fire apparatus. I work for a fire department now and I'm driving along and I've got my crew and this elderly woman just started losing her damn mind outside of my window. And I couldn't, I was like, what is she doing? Is she having a stroke? Is she okay? And she's doing this like weird little dance thing and skip hooting and yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what is going on over there? And she just was like, looks at me and goes, you drive those men around. I thought I would die before I saw a female on a fire engine. And it just was the coolest moment. And to realize like, you know, oh, what I'm doing is kind of a big deal to some people. Like, oh yeah, that's right. I am different. Thank you, Kelsey, so Thank much you, for guys. being with you us so and great. telling your story again three years this later. great. I'll keep coming back if you give me tea. <laughs> Done. We have an endless amount of tea. Tea and cats. Anthea Carnes is a writer, actor, dramaturg, and stage manager born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. She probably wrote this under the influence of too much coffee. The sound in Anthea's story is designed by our very own Linnea Ingalls. Here is her story entitled Coal Mine. 
Think about a coal mine for a second. You walk in from the sun, you get in a little elevator, and you descend anywhere from 30 to 140 stories into the earth. In the tunnels, you have anywhere from 7 feet to 40 inches of clearance. And you'd think it'd be quiet underground, but it turns out coal has a sound. It snaps and crackles and pops under the weight of the land above it. I think of my first year out of college like that, as a coal mine. This sunless place I descended into for a long time, until I finally came out into the light again, carrying a decade's worth of fuel and a case of black lung. My first job out of college was working for a small theater company in my hometown. I was offered a job as the administrative associate by the artistic director, who I'm going to call Charlie. And you have to understand, Charlie was devastatingly cool, and I was so excited to be working at a company that I loved, one of two people keeping it afloat. I started my new job in August. I don't know if you remember your first job, but I made a lot of mistakes. Didn't reply all to this email, did reply all to this email, bought supplies we didn't need, jerry-rigged a solution to something instead of buying supplies, fucked up the copier, came into work early, left work late, forgot to take a message, forgot to take out the trash, forgot to turn in a timesheet, forgot to turn up the heat, forgot to turn off the computer, forgot to say sorry, forgot to say please, forgot, 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 forgot. Whenever I fucked up, Charlie's voice would get sharp and exasperated. My incompetence made her impatient. Except for the times when I made a mistake and Charlie would shrug it off. It was completely unpredictable. I could never quite catch my balance. To people outside the office, I presented the face of a cheerful, competent young artist. Within the office, I fluttered anxiously, like a canary waiting for the air to go bad. I apologized. I chipped away at the rock face. I started to dread going to work. In November, I had a breakdown sitting in my car with my best friend, sobbing about how I couldn't do anything right. In December, I asked Charlie if we could have a progress meeting where we could talk about how I could improve, a last-ditch effort to shore up the crumbling parts of my mental health. When we sat down, Charlie told me two things. First, that I had a tendency to try and solve problems on my own rather than ask how they should be solved. Trying to be independent was just making more problems. Second, when I told Charlie that I needed to know what I was doing right, that when I only ever heard about the things I did wrong, I thought everything was wrong, Charlie told me, this is the real world, this isn't school. You don't get compliments for doing your job. It was like the tunnel collapsed behind me, like my last escape route was gone. On Monday, we went back to work just like before. I forgot to call someone back today. I thought that Charlie was going to call them back, I, but I should have known that it was my job to do that, that Charlie has too much else on her plate. I thought I was going to overstep if I called. Charlie makes it clear I should have called. I cannot wait to leave work. I don't want to leave work because Charlie will see that I hate being here. If I work longer to prove that I want this job and want to be here, Charlie will tell me again that I shouldn't work late because it costs the company money. Charlie has told me that I should take as long as I have to to finish a task and do it well. Charlie has not been here when I have sat in the office well after sunset, counting the cash from the box office for the fourth time because I might be off by a dollar even though I've gotten the same number three times in a row. I have been counting money for an hour so that Charlie doesn't have to. If I do it again, it will cost the company money. If I don't do it again, it'll cost the company money. The radio has played payphone twice since I started, and I will never hear this song again without feeling a little frightened. 
Tomorrow, Charlie and I discuss holding a playwriting contest, and Charlie suggests that we can read submissions while eating pizza and drinking tequila, and the relief I feel at that idea is like sunlight and air. Tomorrow, I check off everything on my to-do list and think, never again. I'll never make a mistake again. I'm 10 pounds thinner than I've ever been. The last time I ate lunch was July. Sometime that winter, the ceiling of my mind cracked open enough to let in some light, and I went down an is-he-abusive checklist. Does your partner criticize and put you down? Does your partner ignore your opinions or your achievements? Are there honeymoon periods after each episode of abuse? Do you feel afraid of your partner much of the time? Do you believe you deserve to be hurt or mistreated? Do you wonder if you're the one who's crazy? Here's the thing. Even after acknowledging to myself that our dynamic had all the hallmarks of an abusive relationship, it took me a long time to say that what Charlie did to me was abusive. Abusers are actively malicious, right? Sometimes I believed that Charlie hated me, but I never thought, and still don't think, Charlie meant to hurt me. No malice aforethought, ergo, no abuse. I think it's easier for us to think of abusers as malicious, because then we don't have to deal with the fact that an abuser can do good things for us and still hurt us. Or that an abuser can be hurt themselves. That job hurt Charlie. I know that. We were in that mine together. I was chipping away at anthracite, and Charlie was on fire. One of those underground blazes that burns for years in defiance of sense, feeding on itself. When I talk about that job, I tend to soften it. I do not say to people I was a victim of emotional abuse because victim sounds so dramatic. I don't say I'm still terrified when I make a mistake at work. I don't say my triggers include deposit pouches, call me maybe, and the month of November. But I also don't say I roll the sleeves of my shirts up like her. I deal with men like I'm their equal like her. I do dirty jobs because I have to, like her. I want to do stunt work like her. I want to save money like her. Because if I say abuse, the whole relationship has to be written off. And if I say admiration, the abuse must not be real. And that contradiction is too much for me to explain. Like, it's not inspiring. It's not like the pressure of that job turned me into a diamond. It was just dark and dirty and it hurt. I came out of those tunnels full of cracks and coal dust. And yet coal is valuable, too. Coal mines can kill the people who go into them, but the rocks they bring up from the dark keep the country running. Coal is what makes it possible for us to turn on a light. How do we reconcile that? What was your experience like performing with She is Fierce? It was great. I remember that I was like, I'm not nervous. And then I walked on stage and I was like, I'm nervous. <laughs> and I definitely, I also remember very clearly making the mistake of making eye contact with someone in the front row and like going up on my line. Well, you were great. Oh, thank she you. She was great. What makes you feel fierce? 
I feel pretty fierce when I put on my Doc Martens. Fuck yeah. <laughs> That's my answer. Amazing. <laughs> Simple, sweet, badass. I love it. Cool. Well, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. Thank you, Chessa and Linnea. Thank you, Pachia's Fierce. Our next storyteller is Nora Mankin. Nora was working as a stage manager in Seattle when the co-op Funeral Home of People's Memorial was being formed in 2007. She became managing director in 2014 and has helped thousands of families with their funeral arrangements. Of course, some families affect you more than others. Nora is joined by musician, composer, and sound designer Lauren Freeman. She is lying wrapped in a plastic sheet on a cold metal table. Her head is tilted slightly away from me. As I walk toward her, I see a row of staples running from her forehead back where I can't even see them end. There's another row above her ear, and the area between the two tracks is shaved and sunken in. It's her, but it's not her. My friend Catherine is lying dead in front of me, and I had a job to do. A sudden medical crisis that was never fully diagnosed culminated in a stroke after many other unexpected complications. Interventions and multiple surgeries had been fruitless. Because she was so young, the doctors just kept trying to fix her. A week before, her wife Lisa made the decision to move her to hospice care so that her poor body could finally rest. Lisa had called me when asking for my help to help bring her home. Catherine and I had worked together before I became a funeral director. We worked in theater, an intimate environment where co-workers become family. I hadn't seen her in a few years. She'd gone on tour, I started a different career, but she was my friend. You set up barriers when you work with the dead, both physical and emotional. I've literally seen hundreds of dead bodies in the last few years. When I started in this business, I did removals, picking up bodies from their place of death and transporting them to our care facility. Physically, you're wearing gloves, even gowns when the situation calls for it. You're not actually coming into contact with the dead person. You don't know this person, it's just another body, special to someone else, so you treat it with respect, but you have no attachment to it. I would help families dress the body in the home before taking it away if they wanted. Once I helped wash and brush out a woman's hair while she was lying in her bed so her daughter could make a braid to cut to keep. Barriers have a way of crashing down when it's someone you know, especially an unexpected death of your peer. This was Catherine, but it wasn't her. I needed to sit with her to digest that. I was there to support Lisa. I was the professional. I was the one experienced in death. I touched Catherine's face and hands, rationalizing the cold I felt with the funny, vibrant woman I had known. Lisa had told me that whenever they encountered a piano in a public place, Catherine would challenge Lisa to play a song of her choosing. Catherine's favorites were Some Enchanted Evening and Abba. So there I was, standing next to Catherine's body, waiting for Lisa, who wanted to prepare her wife for burial herself, and needed my help. When I went out to meet Lisa, she was dragging three suitcases. 
She'd had trouble deciding what to dress her in, so she brought everything. I had told her to bring Catherine's toiletries. We could use her own shampoo and conditioner, which is key for us curly-haired girls. It would help her smell like her again, rather than smelling like hospital. Outside the door to the prep room, Lisa started to cry. I'm scared, she said. I held her for a moment and told her what she'd see on the other side of the door. She's lying on a metal table. I've taken off the plastic wrapping and covered her in a white sheet, but you can see her face. Her head is really sunken in on the side where she had the craniectomy. Her skin is a bit mottled with patches of red. There are some gray sticky spots on her arms and legs, leftover adhesive from the medical tape. There's still a port in her neck and an IV in her arm. We can see red veins in her arms and legs where blood has settled. It's called marbling. Her eyes and mouth are closed. It looks like her, but it's not her. I opened the door. I gave Lisa the same kind of time I needed when I first came into the room. She cried, hugged her, talked to her for a bit. She looked at me. What do we do now? Do you want to bathe her? How do we do that? With a task at hand, we put on aprons. I removed the remaining tubes and IVs that were on her. I consciously chose to forgo the latex gloves for this washing. I wanted to be me, her friend, doing this for her, not her funeral director. I turned the water on warm. Lisa laid out the things she had brought. I handed her a washcloth. She handed me the soap. We started at her shoulders, one of us on each side of her. We passed the soap back and forth as we worked our way down her body. We inched the gown and sheet down as we went, before giving up and removing it altogether. Flecks of blood and the medical adhesive washed away. Lisa and I talked some as we worked, told some stories about, but we were both very much in our own heads working through this. Only after the fact did I think we should have had music playing. When Catherine was clean, Lisa decided to do some landscaping, shaving Catherine's legs and giving her a manicure and pedicure. I washed Catherine's hair. I used a comb to work out the knots that had formed for weeks of being in a hospital bed. Once those curls were clean and flowing, she looked much more like herself. Once Catherine was clean and dried, Lisa went to choose the clothes. While Catherine looked great in a dress, she really was a t-shirt and jeans kind of girl. Lisa picked out a well-worn pair of Levi's, a fitted long sleeve shirt, and a wool cap with Catherine's Union logo on the front. As we dressed her, we laughed a bit about how difficult it is to dress someone who's not cooperating. I compared it to dressing my tantruming two-year-old. No, wait, this was easier. Lisa said it was like manipulating a life-size Barbie doll. When we were done, we stepped back. Tears caught in my throat. The change was so remarkable. I had come into the room with a body that had been through so much. She looked beat up, cold, and lonely. Once she was dressed in her own clothes, she looked so cozy, warm, relaxed, and comfortable. She looked like herself, but it wasn't her. 
Lisa laid her head on her wife's chest and cried. She spoke to her, telling her how much she loved her and missed her. She kissed her. It was almost as hard to leave the room as it had been to come into it. I helped Lisa pack everything up and walked her out to her car. We hugged for a long time. We'd see each other the next day at the service. I noticed we both took a long time to start our cars and drive away. Nora, thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you for, for having your me. story. It's such a beautiful story. Um, what's your relationship with this story? Have you told it before? Um, I originally wrote the story like the day after or maybe two days after the experience of doing it. I ha was so involved with everything that was going on that I felt like I couldn't, I almost couldn't move on unless I put it in writing because it had been such a powerful and emotional thing to go through and I just needed to get it on paper. What makes you feel empowered or fierce? Standing with my hands on my hips and looking up, just remembering to yeah, roll those shoulders. <laughs> remembering to roll those shoulders back. Um, I'm six one and every once in a while I remember that and that just makes me feel powerful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Our last storyteller is Annie Jansen. Annie is a high school social studies teacher. She extends her infinite love and gratitude to her fellow teachers who give so much back to students who yearn to tell their stories. Annie's story was performed alongside visual pieces created by Melissa Shunter. Melissa is a theater divisor, visual artist, anthropologist, podcasting enthusiast, and giant goofball who has trouble turning down any opportunity to collaboratively make art. You can see Melissa's uh, artwork on our website, sheisfearsstories.org. This piece is titled The Closet. Coming out is an endless beginning. Some steps out of the closet are so small, like one toe out the door to casually mention it to a trusted friend. A hand pressed against the jam to give the gay head nod to the cashier with a pixie cut and the rainbow tattoo. An eye peering out to check that the coast is clear, to tell other queers that you're queer too. Some steps out of the closet are monumental. Throwing all of your weight against the door until you are broken, to tell your mom, who keeps loving you. Jumping with every muscle in your body to land with a crash at the feet of your boss, who can fire you in 28 states. Tiptoeing out with your hands over your face because a long branch of your family tree casts terrifying shadows. Coming out is an endless beginning. The door to the closet squeaks too. It's hard to be covert when the door squeaks. There's something about you that's not straight and you can't truly hide in plain sight. The closet has glass walls when you're the most vulnerable, and sometimes you can't even see out, but you can still be seen. Coming out is an endless beginning, because every time is like the first time. A subject broached where assumptions are never truly safe. The childhood friend who sees your choice as an abomination, and the human-truck hybrid chucking venom because hurting strangers is so satisfying and final as final as the click of the closet door as you pull it closed on yourself. The click of the latch might be lipstick, 
or a more delicate walk, or eyelashes curved one octave up. Armor that both protects and burdens, but can't change what's underneath, and it takes so long to understand that what's underneath doesn't need to be changed. Coming out is an endless beginning, but the hangers are not all holding hurt, and the shelves are not all storing garbage. That inner life has glitter and sequins, too. That inner life is rich and tactile and golden, and going back there is the only way we can remember the dark, to keep the path lit and make the way safer for the next set of feet. There's power when the threshold is a borderland, and you can straddle both places, and warmth when friends gather by your door and switch on the light. Sometimes they come inside to commiserate, and sometimes they come inside to draw you out into a world that's less risky with every attempt. Hi, Annie. Hello. Hello. It's so good to see you. Thank you for joining us. Other people who are (laughs) listening, they can't see you, but I can, and it's really nice. It's nice to see you as well. What is your relationship with this story itself? Is it something you've told a lot before? I've never told this story in this way before I have come out to a lot of people in my life I have come out to a lot of people at once in my life which is scary and exciting I have a really good story about that actually my wife had a baby uh in October 2017 and my I was not out to my students at the time and so when I was le- I had to leave in the middle of the day because she was like, babe, I need you to come. Like, we got to we gotta go. It's like baby time. And I hadn't told my students. I was told them. I was like, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple of weeks. I hadn't told them why. Because I wasn't out at work. To my students. I was out to my coworkers. Because my coworkers were amazing. Shout out to my coworkers. Um, but I wasn't ready to be out to my students in mass. Like, maybe if there were a couple students who needed support, I would be like, I would talk to them about my family. Um, I also, this was before I was the GSA advisor at my school. So, you know, even thinking about like being an advocate, I wasn't fully the best advocate I could be in that scenario. And I still look back at that and think, ah, geez, I could have done something so differently, right? As a, as a new teacher. Um, But I looked at my students and I was like, I got the phone call. I looked at my students and I was like, you guys, I got to go. This is the middle fifth period. And they were like, where are you going? And I was like, I got to leave. Um, I got to go away. Um, I got to call Mr. Irwin. Mr. Irwin's our, Pat Irwin, shout out again, wonderful person. I, have to, I call, called him, called her principal, and I was like, I got I to gotta go. I explained what was going on. He's like, yep, got you, no problem. He came up. He covered my class for the last part of my class. Um, and he's like, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. But he was standing in my doorway when I was like grabbing my stuff out of my like media cabinet where I like locked my bag. And I was like, you guys, I'm leaving for two weeks. Um, my wife's having a baby. And like the entire room was just like you're what she's having a baby and I was like yeah and they were like they had so many questions they're like how does that work uh where are you going like why is she is she having a baby right now like they were just didn't they needed to know all the information and I was like listen um yes you can be pregnant um if you have a wife um I gotta go and then I like left and I didn't see them for two weeks and then when I came back they were like so you want to talk about it? And I was, so then I had to talk to him about it, which was fine and not scary. Really. It was fine. Um, but basically I, I, I think what my principal told him after I left was, well, it's Miss Jansen's 
story to tell you when she comes back like he was very respectful you know I was like okay I really appreciate that um but they had questions and I explained to them like and they said well why didn't you tell us they had a wife before I was like well I didn't know how you guys were gonna react they were like this is 2017 wait it'll be fine I was like okay all right okay fine you guys are fine like you're totally fine and ever since then I haven't had any problem being out to my students but it was hard I mean like 27 like even in 2017 I was like no no I'm not ready I'm not ready nope can't make me I don't have to tell anybody if I don't want to but yeah so and I've actually become a better teacher since I am out to my students just because I'm more open and I'm more like myself and they they can tell they're like anybody who's ever worked with teenagers knows they can like smell bullshit bullcrap can I swear on this podcast they can smell bullshit (laughs) and so tell us what makes you feel empowered or fierce those days that are where things kind of click together and you're like oh this is how it's supposed to feel I am a competent professional adult you know or oh this is how it's supposed to feel like I'm a I'm a okay parent you know because nobody's perfect at parenting nobody's like if anybody's like I'm really great at parenting that's a lie like they don't nobody knows what the hell they're doing so um but it was just those days when it sort of clicks together um that's when I feel really like fierce I guess and empowered is when I'm sort of in control of my own life and I feel like a boss and I'm sure that you're a really great parent. I feel it in my bones. If um, I ever am worried about my parenting, I usually just like make a funny face and like make weird ki- noises at my kid and then he laughs and I'm like, it'll be okay. You know, because if he's laughing, then he can't, I can't mess him up too bad. Um, at least he'll, yeah, I don't know. He'll be okay. <laughs> I hope so. Uh, she is fire. This podcast is produced by me, Linnea Ingalls. And me, Chessa Betancourt. Our theme song is written and performed by Shelby Easley, karaoke goddess and musician extraordinaire. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at She Is Fierce Stories. You can find more information about us on our website, sheisfiercestories.org, such as... How to submit a story or get involved. When and where our next show is. Photos and other content from our shows. And lots of other amazing things. Thank you to our storytellers, artistic collaborators, Andrea Eaton, and you for listening to these stories and participating in our very first episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Stay, Stay fierce. fierce. <laughs> oh, you don't know. Whoa, whoa. Well, she is fierce. Are you going to include me going penis, penis, pompalous, poodles? Don't do that. <laughs> You're you go rogue.